We are in the middle of um, a series called Satisfaction. Uh, let me just catch you up. If you weren't here last week, last week we talked about um, resting in Christ. This, we're talking about like these, these things that we know, these facts, satisfaction, these things that we know to be true. And if we know that they're true, can it help us kind of relax? And how many of you would like to just kind of exhale? Exhaling is good, right? So um, one of the things we talked about last week, kind of that foundational truth is that Jesus said on the cross, it is finished. And what does that mean? It means that the work he did on the cross, it's done, right? Uh, he's not a procrastinator. He finishes it. And so I mentioned last week this, this hammock over here. Um, we had it up on the stage. I got in it, got out of it, no problems, not, didn't get hurt. That's fantastic. But this hammock is a perfect, perfect picture of what Jesus did on the cross, right? So, like, there's this gap between our sinfulness and the holiness of God. Um, how do we fix that? Well, what we learned is we can't, but Jesus did. And so when he, he said it is finished, he kind of hung this hammock. He bridged that gap, and we're able to rest in what Jesus has done. It is finished. There's satisfaction there. We can rest in that. But we also thought about this. Um, in all honesty, we rest in what he did, but there's still work to be done, isn't there? I mean, there's still stuff for us to do. And so um, we talked about last week. One of the differences between resting and being lazy is really just the condition of the yard. Right? So if you come to my house and you see me in a hammock and the grass is this high, the first thing you think is, God, he is so lazy. Right, But if you come to my house, I'm in a hammock and my grass is mowed, he's worked hard, he's taken a break. And so what we learned last week is when we rest in his work, we find that we're ready to do the rest of ours. And we, are, we know this, we're called on a mission by God to share the, the gospel, to share the, this, this rest that we're finding, to share that with others. So that's foundational. Everything we talk about today, next week, the last Sunday of November, it's all based on this, this idea of a hammock. We rest in Christ. It's so important that you get that, that we're going to give away that hammock at the end of the month. Somebody's going to walk away with the best sermon illustration ever, right? Um, you're going to hang it up at your house and let, you'll rest in it and be like, wow, this is what it was like to rest in a hammock on stage. Um, every Sunday you're here, just walk up there, put your name, print your name so we don't give it away. To, right? Print your name on a piece of paper, drop it in that basket, and then the last Sunday of the month, we're going to pull a name out, mine, and we'll give it away to somebody. It won't be mine. I was just joking with you. Um, tough crowd already. <laughs> tough crowd. When, when Will, my son, was, I don't know, third grade, something like third grade, um, he came home from school one day, and we're sitting around the dinner table, and we're talking about school. How was school today? And um, my sons and my daughter went, they, um, they go to Park Ridge. The boys are now at Grayson, but they went to Park Ridge Christian School. Um, and so we're sitting around the dinner table. We're talking about how school was that day. And Will, um, his eyes are like big as saucers. He just goes, Dad, somebody said the S word. And I'm looking at Wendy like, what, what are we paying for? Like, <laughs> I said, somebody said the S word at Park Ridge Christian School. And he goes, Dad, like three times, they said the S word. And I was like, but, but what's, well, what's the S word? And like, I could watch his whole face just like crinkles up, you know, and it, he's processing. I know he's thinking, how can I say the S word without saying the S word. And he goes, you know, the S word, stupid with a D on the end. I was like, the S word, stupid? Well, that's stupid. <laughs> you said the S word, right? Like, 
Okay, that's not the S word, right? Um, so the, today, uh, just I'm going to give, I'm going to call you three S words. Is that cool? I'm going to call you three S words. You're going to write them down on your sheet of paper, probably. Three S words. We're talking about facts, things that we know to be true. And if we know these are true, how can they help us rest, find satisfaction? Okay, so here's here's three three S words, and none of them will be the real S word, right? Although, wouldn't that make me famous on YouTube? You are, here we go, um, three S words. Number one, we are small. We are small. A, a lot of the unsatisfaction in the world that people feel can be traced back to one very simple diagram. It's this one right here. Can you see that? I'm sorry, I'm, I'm totally in your way. I know we're missing some screens. This sums up the unsatisfaction in the world. Because when that's your worldview, I'm in the center and everybody revolves around me. Your unsatisfaction comes from, why can't I get people to do what I want them to do? Don't they know that I'm the center of the universe? See, we, we go to counseling. We read books. We do all kinds of things to make ourselves feel bigger, don't we? Guys, well, even girls, but guys especially because I am one, we go to the gym, right? We pump that iron like we press the bar. And we walk out like, check it out, babe, right? I mean, we do all kinds of stuff to make ourselves feel big. But the reality is, and hang with me, it'll make sense at the end. The reality is we are so very small. Check this out. We are small. Just, just to make sure that you get how massive um, the universe is. So if our galaxy, the Milky Way, was the size of North America, so the galaxy, Milky Way, that we live in, if, the, if it was the size of North America, our solar system, where our planets are, would be a quarter. We're small. You and I are small. That's just a known galaxy. Um, just in, in our galaxy, how many stars are in our galaxy? If you ask that question, you'll get a whole wide range of answers. Some will say um, as low as 100 billion stars. Some will say as many as 400 billion stars. So let's just go with a low estimate. Is that cool? In our galaxy, the Milky Way, in our own galaxy, there are 100 billion stars. If you were to count those stars, one star every second, it would take you 3,170 years to count every star in our galaxy. How many galaxies are there in the known universe? Nobody really knows, right? That's what you find out. Well, there's a lot. <laughs> That's not a scientific term, right? So I gotta go with something else. In, our, in the known universe, there's anywhere from 100 to 200 billion galaxies. So let's just take the low estimate again, right? Let's say there's 100 billion galaxies. If there are 100 billion galaxies with 100 billion stars in each galaxy, that means that there are one, 10 septillion, didn't even know that was a, a numerical value, 10 septillion stars, which is a one with 22 zeros. It's a lot of stars. If you were to count those stars at a rate of one per second, it would take 317 trillion years to count all the stars in the known universe. And that's just the size of the universe. That's not the size of the God of the universe. You and I are small. Listen, if that's the universe, listen to what Isaiah 40 says. Isaiah 40, talking about our God. I love this passage. Isaiah chapter 40 Things that we know about God. It says, one, that he spans the universe 
with his hand. Isaiah chapter 40, verse 12, says that he measures the universe with the span of his hand. It says, who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand or with the breadth of his hand marked off the heavens? Here's what that means. Listen, everything we just talked about, what we just saw in that video, all of these one, one with 22 zeros behind it, all of those stars fit in God's hand from here to here. He, he literally palms the universe. So the, to us, we think we're big, but we're small compared to a vast universe. But that vast universe that we know is small compared to the vastness of a God who can hold it in his hand. We are small. God is big. Isaiah 40. He measures that universe with the span of his hand. Verse 15 says that the nations are like a drop in a bucket. It says they are regarded as dust on the scales. The dust on the scales, that's the stuff that when you step on your scale to weigh yourself, you don't even bother to get rid of the dust. When you weigh your food, you don't even bother to make sure there's no dust on it. It's just particles. And he says that that's, that's how he sees the nations of the earth. Verse 25 says this, to whom will you compare me? Who is my equal, says the Lord. That says, I mean, God is in a league of one, Right? Like nobody else is his equal. And in verse 26, I love this. He says, lift, up, lift your eyes and look to the heavens. Who created all these? He who brings out the starry hosts one by one and calls them each by name. If I ask you this question, we would get various answers. But how many names can you remember? I feel like I'm doing good to remember my kids. right? Like, and, and did you ever call your kids the wrong name? Like you just... Like you just, if you, have, if you had 10 kids, you, you call all 10 and eventually somebody's there and you're just like, that's who I wanted, right? I mean, you just, you're like, Will, I mean, Parker, I mean, Sydney. You know, it's like, it's crazy. You know, it's just, you can't, you can't even remember the, your own kids' names. Scientific studies would say this, that about 150 is the max. Now, there are certain people that have skills and they can like, they'll make money on YouTube, remember all these names, but most people, 150 is about it. Remember how many billions of stars, trillions of stars there are, the, the 10 septillion stars in the universe? This says that God is so much greater than the vastness of our universe that he can call out 10 septillion stars, one with 22 zeros on the other end of it, and call them each by name. We're small. I'm not sharing these with you to make you feel small. I'm sharing with you so that you will see that you are small. I like how Louis Giglio says it. He says that we are significantly insignificant. You look at these stats about, about the universe, and then you turn to Psalm chapter 8. Is there any wonder that David wrote these words? Verse 3, when I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers. By the way, did you guys ever finger paint when you were kids? The heavens, it's God's finger painting, right? It says it right there. When I consider the heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you have set in place. David says, when I look up, when I see all that I can see, I have to ask a question, God. And here it is in verse 4. Who is man that you are mindful of him? We tend to go the other direction. Hey, God, don't you see how big I am? You should be mindful of me. 
David says, when I consider the vastness of the universe, and then when I step back and wait, 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 the vastness of the universe, God's palming in his hand, when I consider that, these mind-blowing numbers, who am I that you're mindful of me? Man, we are small. We are small. And, and I love, here's the answer to David's question. Who are we that we are mindful of him? We are seen. That's the second S word. You're small, but you're also seen. We are seen. Let me ask you this question. How, how big of a coin does it have to be on the ground before you'll be down to pick it up? I think most of us are beyond pennies. Maybe nickels, definitely a quarter, definitely if it's paper, right? I mean, like, but if it's a penny, ah, if it's a nickel, maybe dime, probably so, especially if it's not dirty. There was a family in New York City, they just got curious. What would happen if our family made a pact? To always bend over and pick up coins whenever we saw coins. How much could we actually have? Now, they spent seven years picking up every coin that they could. Some coins they couldn't pick up because, you know, like it was in the road and there was a big truck coming, right? I mean, there's sometimes you can't pick it up. But every one that they physically could bend over and pick up, at the end of seven years, they had $1,087, just under $1,100. Now, some of you right now are going, my family's going to do that. <laughs> I'm going on a cruise, baby, and I'm going to pay with a big jar of pennies, right? The, the point here is we tend to lose things when they get small. But God zeroes in on us when we're small. He values us. God says you are worth finding. The first place we see this in Scripture is Genesis chapter 16. That's an easy book to find. It's the first one in the Bible. Genesis chapter 16. We meet this woman by the name of Hagar. We probably don't have time to go into the whole story. Um, you can just kind of read this on your own. It's a, it's a fascinating story, but let me just sum it up like this. Abram is the main character, and Abram is kind of old, and he doesn't have any kids. And God says, look, I'm going to give you a son, and through that son, I'm going to give you descendants and inheritance of people and of nations, and they're going to measure more than the stars that you can see. Isn't it amazing how many times in Scripture God references the heavens? And he says, like, you just go ahead, just try to count them. Can you, maybe Abraham was the first one to go, uh, one, two, three, a lot, <laughs> right? Like, there's tons of stars. You can never count them all. And God says, look, you're going to have more descendants than you can measure by the stars. And they're all going to come through a son that I'm going to give you and your wife, Sarah. Problem was, they were old. Sarah couldn't have kids. She was like, at my age, it's not going to happen. But I do, I'll tell you what I do have. I have a maidservant, and her name is Hagar. And I'm, hey, I got an idea, Abram. You take Hagar. This is literally in the Bible. You take Hagar and sleep with Hagar, and we'll have a baby through Hagar, and God will give it. That's how we'll get the promise. Now, listen, men, because I know sometimes men can be dense. Let me just, just real quick, side, side note, give me some marriage counseling, okay? This is a trick question. All right, um, we struggle with stuff like, do these jeans make my butt look big, right? That's, but, but like when your wife says, I got a maidservant, the answer is no. That's the answer, right? No, 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 <laughs> no. Whatever follows that, I'm out. Like not going to happen. But Abram is like, okay, I know that 
Preachers make Abram look like a phenomenal man, and he, he did go on to be a great man of faith. This was not his shining moment, okay? Can we at least be honest and say that this is not a shining moment for Abram? When his wife says, I got a maidservant, sleep with her, and he says, uh, okay. Not the shining moment for Abram. She gets pregnant. Because she's pregnant, she starts to hate Sarah, her boss. Sarah then blames Abram, and Abram's like, you gave it her to me. Do what you want with her. Again, not his shining moment. He says, your servant is in your hands. Do with her whatever you will. So Sarah mistreated her, and so she fled from her. This is where we find Hagar. She's in the desert, alone, pregnant, and forgotten. Like if you could rank women in the Old Testament to this point in the, story, in, in the Bible, for on a scale of like really important and really big to really small, to get to Hagar, you'd have to come down to the small and then go negative. She's forgotten. She's got nobody in her corner. She is smaller than anybody we would ever know to this point in Scripture. And here's the, here's what the exchange that takes place between her and it says the angel of the Lord, um, but we know from later in the story that it's, it's God. The angel of the Lord found Hagar in the desert, and he said to her, Hagar, servant of Sarah, where, where have you come from and where are you going? Seems like God's always asking us that question. Where have you come from? Where are you going? I'm running away from my mistress, Sarah, she answered. And then the angel of the Lord told her, go back to your mistress and submit to her. Can you just imagine Hagar be like, seriously? That's the advice? I don't want to go back. The angel added, I will so increase your descendants that they will be too numerous to count the angel of the Lord also said to her, you are now with child, you will have a son, you will, he will name him Ishmael, for the Lord has heard of your misery. And that is good news, right? Then he continues, he says, he will be a wild donkey of a man. These are not the words that a pregnant woman wants to hear, right? Your son will be a wild donkey of a man. His hand will be against everyone, everyone's hand against him. And he will live in hostility toward all his brothers. Quick little history note about the Bible. All the things that you see on the news in the Middle East come from this story. From Isaac and Ishmael, who were brothers, who were enemies, and everything that you see. I love when people go, the Bible is so old and irrelevant. But they're like glued to the, have you seen what's going on in the Middle East? Yeah, the Bible. That's what's going on in the Middle East. The Bible Everything that took place from here, two brothers, when he said he'll be a wild donkey of a man, they will be against him. They have fought from this moment till now. And here's what, here's what Hagar, a forgotten woman, so small on the scale as if, as if to be invisible. Here's what she says in verse 13. She gave this name to the Lord. She's, she's outside of the people of God, and she got to name God. And here's the name she gave him. You are the God who sees me. She named God Elroy. How amazing is, no, 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 no not, not that Elroy. Not that, that's, that's Elroy from the Jetsons. You're, no, that's not, God's, an, he's just a big old Elroy. No, no, Elroy, it's two words, E-L and then R-O-I. E-L-R-O-I, and the R-O-I is not return on investment, okay? It's Elroy, and it means the God who sees me. You, you just got to get this. We may be small, but God says, I see you because you're worth finding. He sent Jesus, Luke 19.10, best verse in the Bible, hope for all of us, to seek and to save the lost. 
the God of the universe who, who palms everything that we can see in our universe. And if that was the whole universe, we are some barely small prick in there. That God turns to his son and says, I got a mission for you. I want you to run. I want you to go. I want you to seek and save the lost. Jesus is like, where do you want me to go? The big planets? Mm, no, I got to, I guess earth. It's my create. I want you to go there. There are people there. You, you can't really see. Go find them. Go see them. They're worth finding. We're small. We're seen. But we aren't just seen. Here's your last S word. We're safe. We're safe because when Jesus found us and he rescued us, he became totally invested in us. I love Psalm 91. Just some of the things that we learn about how safe we are in Christ. Verse 11 says that we're guarded. He will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. The next verse says that we are held those angels will lift you up in their hands. They will not let you strike your foot against a stone. Verse 15 says that we're heard. He said, I will call upon him and he will call upon me and I will answer him because he's going to hear us. And I love verse 16. We're doing a series right now called Satisfaction. It says, with long life, I will satisfy him and show him my salvation. And we, are, we are small. I mean, in the whole comparison of the universe, we are so small because we attach value to size, if we were God, we'd be like, ah, that's just a penny. I'm not going to bend down and pick them up. But because God attaches value to us, he says, they might be small, but I am sending my son down to seek and save them. The value in being small is that God values small things. That's your big idea today. The value in being small is that God values small things. Here's just a couple of examples. Moses in the Old Testament, God said, what do you have in your hand? He's like, uh, just a staff. He has a staff, but with that staff, he delivered a nation. Samson had a jawbone, and with a jawbone, killed a thousand enemies. David had a sling, five stones. With it, he took down a giant. There was some boy, some kid in, in the New Testament, and all he had was some bread and some fish. And with that bread and fish, God fed, Jesus fed 5,000 men. Some say, count the women and children, as many as 14,000 people. God values small things. Small does not mean inconsequential to God. Never think that you're not valued because you're small. We're worth finding we're worth protecting. Here's what I, I want to draw a picture, paint a picture for you if I can as we're closing. It's Veterans Day. I think about veterans. I think about what they do to help other people. And, and sometimes I, th I think I'm a man, right? Like, I'm, I'm a man. Then I think about what veterans do, and it's like, Ugh, would, I, would I have done that? I'm so humbled by what veterans do for us. We just imagine this for me. Imagine that you are a prisoner of war. You've gone to fight. You've gone to serve your country. You were captured by the enemy, and they've got you somewhere in this little place that's some forgotten jungle, and you're, just in, this, you're in this, this room. There's some bars, a little bit of light. You're a prisoner of war. You can't get out, and you have no hope of ever being rescued. You, you wake up every day. All you can do just to keep hope alive 
scratching stuff in the walls, trying to remember people that you remember from back home, seeing their faces, trying to, trying to stay alive. And then all of a sudden, one day you wake up and you, you hear it. You hear the helicopter. You hear the rotors going around. And you think, this is it. Like, they're coming for me. And you, you peek out the window and you can see up on the hill, up on the hill, just on the rise, you see your comrades coming up over the hill. And they stop right at the top and you see them like, God, they're here. They're here. You watch the one guy pull his binoculars out. He's looking down. He's looking all around. He locks right on you. And you like, he sees you and you see him, which is really awkward because like you're looking at the big part of the binoculars to see the big eyeballs like blinking, you know, like in the cartoons. And he sees you. And like hope rises because this is the day you're going to get out because you have been seen. You, you were small, you were forgotten, but somebody came to find you, and they see you. And as soon as they see you, and you're like telling nobody, because they're like, they, they're seeing me, they're, they're coming for me. You look up, and the binoculars drop, and they just shrug their shoulders, drop their heads, turn around, walk away. I mean, just, we're just in church right now, but could you feel the panic that would come from that. Look, it's not enough to just be seen. God came to see us and save us. He didn't see us and leave. He saw us and then he saved us. Our satisfaction comes from knowing that we have been seen and saved. And that means that because we've been seen, we can now see others who need to be saved. We say this a lot. Save people, serve people. And you know why that is? Because if you've been in the military, if you've ever been caught and then you were rescued, you imagine they take that POW back to camp. And they start feeding that POW to build up his or her strength. And I don't know what prisoners of war would eat. It's got to be a lot of bacon, right? Like bacon, everything. Like bacon, bacon wrapped around pancakes, like Rice Krispie treats with bacon. I mean, just all kinds of bacon. And they eat all this stuff. And once they get their strength back, what is that ex-POW saying to their commanding officer? Send me back. Send me back. I know where there's another POW camp near where I was. I can lead you to them. Because safe people serve people. The last thing that our city needs is for us to come together on Sundays and rejoice that we've been saved, seen and saved, just to go back out Monday through Saturday and barely even see them. And even if we saw them, to never help save them. For our city, that's like seeing the binoculars drop and your only hope walking away. See, our satisfaction is in this, that we may be small, but God valued us and saw us. And then he valued us and saved us. Because whether we feel it or not, we were worth finding and we were worth fighting for.
And it's crazy how our mind plays tricks on us, isn't it? Like we spend this whole time trying to convince us, ourselves that we're small. And then we hear words like, well, you're worth finding and you're worth fighting for. And we're like, I know. Check it out, God. Here I am, right? It's like crazy. It's crazy how, how quickly we forget we're small. We're small. But in God's kingdom, small means valuable. And so now God turns to us. He looks, he looks at us, save people, and he simply says this. Lift up your eyes and look at the harvest. It's ripe. It's growing. There are souls ready for my kingdom. Do you see it? And will you serve it? It's a question. And the only answer for people who have been seen and saved is yes. The value of being small is that God values small things. And he does it for us. And now he invites us to be a part of that mission. Jesus said to his disciples, I sent you the way I sent you. I'm sending the way I was sent. I'm sending you. You walk out of here this morning. Shoulders back, chest out. I'm on a mission. There's people that I need to see this week so that I can help save them.